Good morning. I'm Tommy Howe, and welcome to another edition of Tree Huggers International, a natural science and environmental affairs program dedicated to the preservation of parks, wilderness, and special places. From the beaches to the mountains to the deserts, this is Tree Huggers International. Be careful and use this show with caution because you might just learn something. As fans of Tree Huggers International know, one of the show's priorities has been to keep California state parks funded and open to the public. Maintaining the integrity of California state parks is critical, not only for the environmental, physical, and mental health of Californians, but as a template for the rest of the nation. How California arrives at a solution to keep its parks open and fully maintained will have repercussions on how other states handle their park systems, as well as how the National Park Service moves forward in an era of austerity and tightening federal budgets. From Jedediah Smith and Humboldt Redwoods in Northern California, to Point Lobos in Montana de Oro along the Central Coast, to the parks of the Gold Country, the beaches of Southern California, to the giant Anza Borrego Desert State Park, and historic locales like Marshall Gold Discovery, Allensworth, and Angel Island, California State Parks are outstanding treasures and outstanding resources. If you live in the Golden State, you are fortunate to have nearby access to them. David Vassar and Sally Kaplan are filmmakers, and their production company, Backcountry Pictures, has produced a new two-part documentary on California State Parks called California Forever. The film was recently screened at the San Diego Natural History Museum, and the film will air in September on select PBS stations around the nation, including KPBS in San Diego. David, Sally, welcome to Tree Huggers International. We are really thrilled to have the two of you in the studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. And as a State Parks fan, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, and I really enjoyed hearing you talk about in Episode 2, Rio de Los Angeles and the L.A. State Historic Park. And they're surprisingly, you know, right in the middle of the second biggest city in the U.S. And it's just great to know if you need some wild time or just some outdoor time and you live in the middle of Los Angeles, you don't necessarily have to pack your bags to go to Yosemite for the weekend. Well, truly in Los Angeles, it's not just don't have to go, but often these are people who cannot go. They either cannot afford to go or cannot take the time off to go. And so Los Angeles, the parks that we focused on there really are representative of places in the backyard of people to enjoy. Yeah, and and the other piece of that is that, you know, inevitably, whenever there's a park bond on the ballot, these inner city neighborhoods that are often uh, neighborhoods of color, people of color, they vote for these park bonds by 85, 90%. And it's billions of dollars, and they don't get to go to Humboldt Redwood State Park. They don't get to go to Jed Smith. They don't get to go to Point Lobos. They barely get to go to the Santa Monica Mountains. That's a big trip for them. So here you have a constituency that is um, dyed-in-the-wool supporting parks. Their taxpayer money is going to pay for them, but they get nothing in return. So I think that's the other piece of the L.A. rewilding story. It's not just a story about, you know, taking industrial brownfields and making Edens out of them. It's including that constituency within parks, providing parks for the constituency that supports them consistently by high, high percentages. And L.A., I think, is just a shining example of what's going to have to begin happening in cities across California. 
and probably across the country. Well, it's just so unusual to find a state park, when you think about it, inside a major urban area, unless it's a historic resource, something like uh, like Sutter's Mill in Sacramento. So the fact that you're able to go along the Los Angeles River and find these, it, it really is special. And I remember when I was there at the Rio de Los Angeles, I was very surprised. In another lifetime, in 1980, Chris Tufty, the director of photography, and I actually made a film about the Los Angeles River called River in Disguise. And the at that moment in time, this was 30 years ago, there were two conceptual artists that were thinking about rewilding a section of Arroyo Seco, which is the, the creek that runs out of the San Gabriel Mountains and joins the L.A. River right at the junction of, of the Pasadena Freeway and Interstate 5. At that moment in time, when that segment came on, people thought that they were insane because their idea was so out there. So it is very, in fact, there's a little bit of stock footage from, from that film in the L.A. City Park sequence. It's funny when people think of the uh, Arroyo Seco in Los Angeles. You're talking about the 110. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, but, <laughs> but interestingly, when the Arroyo, before they put the freeway through uh, Arroyo Seco, that was a wooden bicycle path from Pasadena to downtown Los Angeles with an in- incredible system of wooden trestles. And I mean, it was really like a Disneyland ride. It was unbelievable. And that was bulldozed for the freeway. So it's an interesting turn of history, the way things keep coming around. Well, when we think of state parks, it's easy to think of the state's landscapes. Bodie Hills State Historic Park offers these incredible landscapes with the added feature of a gold era ghost town. Allensworth has its own unique history right in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley. Can you talk about some of the state's historic parks and why they're important? You know, um, Pio Pico and Whittier is another really good example of that. Well, another discovery I had as a producer on this film is I did not realize until I really worked on the film that these historic places were in fact parks. Because it's true, like you said, when you think of park, you think of open land, you think of green, you think of breathing good air. You don't think of a place that represents something, a building or a people's, as a park. But some of California's gems of parks are in fact representative of historic places that represent turning points in time of various peoples that make up California. A very moving story in episode two is kind of an untold, or shall I say an undertold story, about the Chinese immigrants who came during the Chinese Exclusion Act and were not allowed in to San Francisco and were essentially detained on Angel Island. The Angel Island Immigration Station is a state park that is devoted to telling the story of this this people's. And that's the real benefit of having historic resources like that, because almost all of the visitors who probably go to Angel Island on a beautiful day in the Bay Area, the last thing they're thinking about is detention, imprisonment, uh, racial laws. Yeah, I think, I think that the historic side of California state parks is at least on equal footing with the natural areas, because I think that the historic sites that California state parks protect which is so eloquently stated by Kevin Starr in our piece, and and that is these places are authentic touchstones where you can stand, you can stand at at, uh, Marshall Gold, where a few grains of gold change the history of the world. You can stand at the Customs House at Monterey and understand the Spanish and Mexican colonialism. You can go to a place like Indian Grinding Rock in the Sierra foothills and literally feel the presence of a people 
who were here for thousands of years before the outside world arrived. And to protect those places, that's a piece of who we are. And in fact, these places define what it means to be a Californian. Nothing less. And another person in our piece who speaks eloquently about experiencing these places and and gaining a sense of place out of them is John Worminski, who was the chief of interpretation for parks for many years. When you think about California State Parks, when you think about the historical sites and the natural areas, along with the recreation areas and the, the, the nature preserves like Point Lobos, it's not a park. It's a, it's a natural preserve. That's a whole different management uh, philosophy than, say, Torrey Pines or Garapata State Beach up in Big Sur. If you think about the 278 places those parks protect, you're talking about the definition of, of California. And if you, if you lose that, you essentially lose the history to move forward. You can't move forward without an acknowledgement and an understanding of where you've come from. It would be like being an adolescent until you were 95 years old. It just doesn't work. <laughs> but to underscore what you said in your question earlier, Tommy, I think it's true that most people do not recognize that these places also are California state parks. Mm-hmm. You know, California state parks are unique on their own simply because of how spectacular they are. In many other states, you have some remarkable state parks. But in California, because it was settled so early in the West, the federal government didn't really get a lot of these places. Like Montana de Oro, if this was in any other state in the U.S., that would be a national monument. But the fact that it was in California and it was saved as a state park even before that wave of national monuments at the beginning of the 20th century, that's really where a lot of those astonishing landscapes and environments were preserved. Several years ago, I had a ranger on from Torrey Pines State Natural Reserve, and we talked at length about the problem state parks and other protected areas face as islands of conservation or biological islands in urban and not-so-urban areas. How do you find California state parks through your travels and making the film is managing that? Because there are so many places like Garapata, even though that's a part of the larger Big Sur Central Coast area, uh, if you go further into the backcountry, you run into national forest land, and it's a whole different management going on there. For some parks, they are very, very well connected. For instance, if you look on the north coast, you have Jed Smith at the, at the uh, Oregon border, then you've got Del Norte, then you've got Prairie Creek. Humboldt is somewhat detached. There's a tremendous amount of private logging up there as well, but there's a big piece of that ecosystem that is intact. If you take a place like, for instance, Chino Hills State Park, which is basically surrounded by the the heaviest, densest development in the state, in the Inland Empire, you really do have a biological island. You have a, a park that's surrounded on four sides by industrial development and suburban development. However, there is underneath the, I guess underneath the 91 freeway, there is a biological corridor that they actually built an overpass to hook it up with Cleveland National Forest. So there's a really good example of how, with a little bit of foresight, and of course, I'm assuming your listeners know what happens when you have a biological uh, island. You don't have interaction with other species. You don't share the DNA. You don't share the offspring. And what, what happens is, I mean, as a for instance... If you look at the 175,000 northern elephant seals 
in that that basically now populate from Baja to uh, British Columbia, they can all be traced genetically to the Guadalupe Island off the coast of Mexico. If you map their DNA, they're like 97 to 98% identical. What that means is if there is a disease that should break out at some point in the future and they don't have a, uh, they don't have the ability to fight that disease, it could knock off the entire colony. The elephant seal story is not a biological island story, but it is an example of what can happen if you don't have genetic diversity in the herd, in the fauna, in the flora. One thing I was moved by that happens in one of the L.A. parks, which is Baldwin Hills Scenic Overlook, is they are teaching local high school students how to restore the, the land. And one of the issues the high school students ran into was trying to grow the appropriate cactus so the cactus wren could survive there and learned, number one, how hard it was to grow the cactus. Number two, if the cactus cannot be grown, the wren will disappear. If the wren disappear, the red-tailed hawk has nothing to eat. If the red-tailed hawk has nothing to eat, and it goes on and on, and what was being educated to these students then was this ecosystem is disappearing. Non-native species, once they get a foothold in there, it's hard to get them out. Especially, And the, the first ones that show up are the most aggressive ones. And in the film, in, in, in the, the kids are at Baldwin Hills and they're taking away all these mustard plants and, and all these plants that look very attractive. They look pretty. It looks like the ecosystem is healthy, but they are preventing certain native animals from getting in there and making their homes. I think that the idea of parks as a biological island is problematic because you have to establish the links that allow for diversity of species of plant life and mammals and herds and lizards and fish and birds. But the other piece of it is to remember that many of these parks are, you talk about biological islands, they are terrariums that are preserving, in, in some cases, the very, very last critter or the very, very last plant or lizard or the coast redwoods or whatever it is. So they, they really, you know, it's, it is incredibly complex to figure out a way to link these ecosystems together so we don't get into the situation where parks become essentially the dioramas you used to see in natural history museums with the stuffed animals. Because even though the, even though the trees are alive, if they don't have interaction with other species, it's a death warrant. And I think another thing your question was leading toward um, is something that came up when we were up at Ananueva with the elephant seals. And this is back to the management issue. California State Parks has their mandate in protecting both the mammals as well as the people who want to use the park. And then was it NOAA? Mm -hmm. That is yet another agency, a federal agency, I believe, whose mandate is to protect the animal. And then there was the Coast Guard, whose right it is to protect <laughs> our waters from for defense reasons and whatnot. And all these groups have to find a way to work together. In that particular issue, I believe most of them had a very similar desire to protect these animals. But in some, or the question mark comes, what are the samples going to be when these different agencies are not necessarily going to have the same mandate? If you're just joining us, this is Tree Huggers International. I'm Tommy Howe, and today we're joined by David Vassar and Sally Kaplan of Backcountry Pictures. 
and we're talking about their new two-part film about California state parks called California Forever. Presented by KQED Public Television in San Francisco, the film airs in September on select PBS stations around the U.S., so make sure you check your local listings. In San Diego, you can see California Forever on KPBS-TV Thursday, September the 20th. Again, you can see California Forever on KPBS-TV in San Diego on Thursday, September the 20th. You can learn more about California Forever at www.calforever.com. That's Cal, the numeral four, ever.com. Also check out the homepage for Backcountry Pictures and learn more about David and Sally at backcountrypictures.com. And the show is being presented by Public Television KQED in San Francisco. You can find KQED online at kqed.org. So for several years, we've been going through this process of threatening to close state parks, but over the years, it's never actually come to pass, but it always really gets right down to the wire. And then last year, the state released the actual closure list, and everyone's saying, well, this time they're serious. I mean, they're serious. We're going to lose state parks. And thankfully, that didn't come to pass at the level that we had thought still lost one park, which is one park too many as far as uh, this program is concerned. But I was wondering if you could talk about why is it important for California state parks to remain funded by the citizens of California and managed by a state parks agency? Why is this better than privatizing that out? Because that's something that you wind up hearing a lot these days for, for better or for worse. It's a complicated question and you can't really dismiss it with a bumper sticker. I mean, I think the first thing you have to remember is the University of California has to raised tuition on tens of thousands of students to the point where their parents are having trouble keeping them in school. Courthouses across the state are cutting back their hours because they don't have enough judges. They don't have enough court clerks to hear cases. So I think it's important to remember that parks are not alone in the suffering right now. We just went through and are frankly still in the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression of 1929. So I think it's important to keep everything in perspective. The other piece of it is, is that the park budgets have been shrinking for the last 10 or 12 years, so that at this point there is now a billion and a half dollars worth of deferred maintenance. Now, what, the, what does deferred maintenance mean? That means that instead of fixing a restroom, you put a sign on it, restroom closed. That means instead of opening a beach for people to use because the sewer is rotting, you close the beach because you don't have the money to replace the sewer line. That's not a way to protect parks. The larger issue is, and the reason we made this film, was to remind people that their state parks represent a legacy that's almost 150 years old. Many of these state parks were created by the citizen action of individuals up and down the state. Great sacrifices were made. Extraordinary amounts of private money was spent to buy these parks from real estate developers, lumber companies. As far as I'm concerned, the state of California has an oath to protect these places. They are their caretakers. They belong to the people of California. There are parks the state doesn't have the right to turn them over to someone else to manage. They have to take the responsibility to do it themselves. Families 
families donated that land with the idea being that, well, the state of California, that'll be here in a thousand years. And that was meant to be in, in perpetuity. That wasn't meant to, to say, yeah, Pepsi-Cola will wind up managing this park in 50 years. It's hard to believe that that's actually being discussed these days. But yeah, you're right. State parks are certainly not alone in the suffering from the budget ills and yeah. the economy. Yeah. Just to jump in here, I think sometimes there's a disconnect that I sometimes am guilty of too, which is if something is owned by the state, it's not mine. And in fact, it is ours. It's not the state has no money. The st- it's us. And these were built by citizens. These need to be kept open by citizens. These need to continue to be owned and operated by citizens. How long did it take to shoot all of this? And how long did it take to even go and determine where you wanted to go and shoot first? Can you talk about that a bit? About four years ago was when the discussion of the film even began. Um, It was after the threat to San Onofre State Beach by a toll road was, was on the table as an argument. And David, over coffee one morning with me, said, this is insane. These places are supposed to be here forever. What are they even thinking? How could this even be on the table? And together we joined forces and wrote a letter and said, you know, we're filmmakers and I don't know if this is the direction you want to take this, but if you want the public to know how important this is, we think film could be a tool to tell that story. And about three years ago, they, the, the powers that be said, yes, we agree, we'd like a film to be made on this. And then about a year later, that year was spent really scouting places, coming up with stories, researching writing the script, and then I'd say the last two years were the shooting period and the editing period of the film. You know, episode one was definitely the more complicated film to make because we had to we had to choose which of the 278 parks had a story that represented a turning point, that represented a milestone in state park history, because obviously we can't, in two hours, we can't do all 278 parks. <laughs> So that was, frankly, the most difficult thing, trying to find, not only trying to find the story, which is incredibly serpentine, it's really a complicated history. I think the second film was a little less complicated because we, rather than telling a story with an arc over 150 years, we wanted to tell six short stories. So the first film really is is episodic. The second film is a series of short stories. Chapters. Yeah, chapters. The first film really has one arc, which is begins in Yosemite and actually begins in Calaveras in 1852 and ends around 2000. But one of the questions you asked is how do we find the stories? And in episode one, as David mentioned, we wanted to pinpoint the places that represented the broad sweeping turning points in the history of the creation of California state parks. The other thing we did, which filmmakers and storytellers do sometimes, is we we kind of put on top of that our own structure, and that was um, split into places across the state. The idea was, rather than make this an intellectual history with no feeling and emotion, we thought, well, look, what's going on here is that you have these really extraordinary places— Certain people throughout history are visiting these places and being deeply moved by these places, and that inspires them to take action to create the parks. So there are really 
four sections to five sections of the film. There's Yosemite because that's the first. There's the Redwoods, the North Coast Redwoods, because that's where everything coalesces. There's the coast of California because that's the priceless treasure. Then there's the desert. The Sierra Nevada is largely protected by national parks, Yosemite, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and a lot of wilderness areas in national forests. But the gold rush story is in the Sierra Nevada. So what episode one tries to do is establish the mood of the place and lets the audience perceive and experience the place. And out of that experience comes the intellectual history of the place. That was kind of structurally what we wanted to do. We wanted the audience to understand why Andrew P. Hill, who was in Big Basin in 1900, felt the way he felt. So we tried to fashion a little three or four minute sequence with no narration, just music and place to paint the picture of what inspired these people to to set them aside. And just as a footnote, something that we try to do in all of our films very consciously and very deliberately is to use landscape as an actual character that has its own arc to a story. For this particular project, we had the support of some extraordinary people who had their life and their DNA in California State Parks for many years before we approached doing the project. And they were invaluable. I mean, Joe Embeck, the historian of California State Parks, was essentially the one that said, you know, there's a story on the Central Coast that you may want to look into. There's this large mammoth animal, but right next door is this tiny little bird, no bigger than a butterfly, and the two of them, the contrast there is something you might want to take a look at. We had little whispers in our Mm -hmm. ear for a number of these stories like that. I think that the story of California State Parks is challenging because there are so many of them. It's also challenging because, you know, it's an old saw, but... It's a pretty diverse state ecologically. You know, you can go from Anza Borrego to Torrey Pines to Jed Smith, which is virtually a rainforest, to Tomales Bay to Calaveras Big Trees. And, you know, in those seven parks, you have seven incredibly diverse ecological communities. So the big picture is I'm a native Californian and I've always believed that that diversity, not only in landscape, but in our people, is at the heart of who we are. And the idea of making a film that would explore that was pretty exciting. So it, it, I think the diversity of the state and the diversity of its people is really the story we tried to tell. The biggest challenge was truly how to narrow it down and how to keep it into one hour. I mean, there was truly an embarrassment of riches. (laughs) There are many of these stories that could live as a one-hour show unto themselves. 
I was going to ask about that. Were there some state parks you wished you had more time to cover? The Portola Redwoods, Saddleback Buttes, MacArthur Bernie Falls, which you really have to go and figure out where the heck it is to go and find it. Uh, Castle Crags right there off of I-5, which everybody drives by, but nobody ever goes to take time to go visit. Are there some parks that you feel more people should go see and visit? I think that there are uh, quite a few parks that people would be blown away if they went to see, but I think it's really good that a lot of people don't know about them. (laughs) I I don't want to... Watch the movie! (laughs) I mean, I think that there, you know, there are, I mean, there are places that you, you really that need solitude. And, and I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful park, which shall remain unnamed on the North coast that maybe gets 300 visitors a month. And it's one of the most spectacular pieces of the coast in California. And it's at the end of a 35 mile dirt road, four months out of the year, the mud is up to your wheel. Well, and not very many people go there. And we really wanted to, because it's a wonderful story about a Native American community coming together with a group of really strong redwood conservationists and forging an unstoppable uh, political union to create this really beautiful park. For a number of reasons, we didn't tell that story. And, you know, frankly, I'm disappointed as a storyteller that we didn't tell the story. But from a budget point of view and a scheduling point of view it would have sort of pushed us over the edge and the secret will remain. You know, you have to, there's a few things that you have to discover for yourself. It's part of hiking. It's part of walking. It's part of the next movie. (laughs) And and I will answer that. There are a few places that stand out to me that I do think people should know about and go visit that they might not realize are there and might not realize are parks. Chaussee is one Indian, which is also known as Indian grinding rock. That place was enchanted to me. La Purissima Mission was a place I never would have thought would have the haunting beauty and experiential sense. I cannot wait to go back. One of the reasons La Purissima is so great is because you park in the parking lot, you cross a little, sort of a little uh, dry creek, which is totally covered with oak. You come up out of that dense forest and there's a dirt road in front of you. And you walk down the dirt road and there's a 17th century cart on the side of the road and then there's the mission on the right side and then the ranger informs you that you were standing on El Camino Real which is now <laughs> Highway 101. <laughs> and I'm sorry you're going to mention Allensworth too. Well, I was just going to say Allensworth. I yeah. mean I think that you know some of these places that are representative of a certain sector of California's peoples should be visited by everybody. I mean, Allensworth is an amazing place, has amazing celebrations going on. And for the long drive between Los Angeles and San Francisco that many people make, it's a lovely halfway stop. Yeah, Allensworth is one of those places that it, it, it is a... I never heard of the place. I didn't really understand much about the African-American experience in California outside of you know the jazz age on Central Avenue in, in South Los Angeles. But, you know, this is a community that in 1900 was founded by freed slaves who'd come up from Mississippi and Alabama and wanted to start a new life. And it fell into ruin in the Depression. The money ran out and they all had to walk away. And, you know, if it hadn't been for an activist group of African-Americans in the 1970s who said, hey, this is a piece of our culture, our history, America's history, California's history, it'd be, you know, it'd be uh, Beanfields. So it's, it's an amazing story, and it is a gem. It's a true gem. Can you talk about how 
KQED came on board? I think that we knew that to gain a large audience for a documentary like this, it needed to be on television. And I think the proper home for it um, in the style and the kind of work that we knew we were going to create, it was going to be a PBS show. And so many of the parks, so many of the people who are active in in work around parks and whatnot are in the Northern California area. So KQED seemed like a wonderful fit just for the two of us. But I remember when we walked into the pitch meeting, our interest was in pitching it as a story that would air on California stations only. That's what we intended it for. And the first thing we were told by the then director of programming, Suzanne Romain, was, well, why aren't you thinking about this for the whole nation? KQED has a track record. You know, they did the Save the Bay, which was a two one-hour shows about the San Francisco Bay. And they do provide programming to PBS. The good news is, is that the five or six major markets in California are all airing the show in prime time. And that was, that was always our goal because uh, we wanted to make a film for the California constituency. And that includes KPBS in San Diego, and that's going to be on Thursday, September the 20th. Check your local listings if you're not in San Diego for a screening or an airing of the program. Near San you. Diego, it'll be uh, on KPBS. It'll be 9 o'clock for episode one and 10 o'clock for episode two. What would you recommend to prospective documentary filmmakers? Someone just got a brand new camera and they want to go shoot something outside. What would you recommend? Um, when I speak to, to college kids and, and high school kids, what I tell them is there's only so much about filmmaking you can learn from a book. You have to make the movie. You have to sit in a dark room and you have to watch people watch the movie. That's really, and you do that 15 or 20 times and you figure out what, what's working and what's not. And you go with what's working and you forget about what isn't working. And the other thing I tell them is make a film about something you care about. Whether it's fiction or nonfiction is irrelevant. But this idea of like, you know, you're going to make a really great film and get a job and start directing in Hollywood. It's just not, you know, you've got to have some passion for the subject matter. And given the state of the art of the technology world right now, I mean, pick up a camera and make the movie. There's no excuse. Choose subject matter that you're passionate about because it's hard work and you can, you too can get bored. <laughs> um, and the other is don't just take pretty pictures. Tell a story, find the story, develop the story, let the story unfold, but let it have a story. David Vassar, Sally Kaplan from uh, Backcountry Pictures. Really, really nice having you on the program. Really enjoyed having you here. This is a terrific discussion. CalForever.com. It is airing on select PBS stations around the country this fall. Again, that's CalForever.com. You can also go to uh, BackcountryPictures.com for more information as well. David, Sally, nice talking with you and hope to see you again sometime. Total pleasure, Tommy. Thank you. The pleasure was ours. Thanks very much for having both of us on. That's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of Tree Huggers International. I'm Tommy Howe. Thanks once again to David Vassar and Sally Kaplan of Backcountry Pictures for joining us. The name of their new film is California Forever. It will be on PBS stations around the U.S. beginning in September. Check your local listings. In San Diego, you can see the film Thursday, September the 20th on KPBS-TV. Again, in San Diego, you can see California Forever on KPBS-TV, Thursday, September the 20th. You can learn more about California Forever at www.calforever.com. That's Cal, number four, ever, 
www.backcountrypictures.com. And check out the homepage for Backcountry Pictures at backcountrypictures.com. For more information on Tree Huggers International and to hear previous editions of the show, go to the Tree Huggers International website at treehuggersintl.com. That's treehuggersintl.com. Also find social media outlets for Tree Huggers International at Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter account is at treehuggersintl. Tree Huggers International content is also available on iTunes. This is Tommy Howe for Tree Huggers International. We'll be back with another take on natural science and environmental affairs as we continue our mission to preserve parks, wilderness, and special places on Tree Huggers International. Lace up your boots, get out on the trail, and hug a state park near you. Be well. <laughs>